Good morning. We find ourselves back in our book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're located in chapter 10, and today we'll be looking at verses 19 through verse 1 of chapter 11. And today I've entitled the message, Christian Living in a Pagan World. Christian Living in a Pagan World. And so I pray that uh, this message will be applicable to your lives as we look into God's Word. Well, let's read our text together. You can follow along in your Bibles, beginning in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then uh, we will have a word of prayer, and then we'll have our message. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything. Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot take the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, the implication is to an idol, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And then verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Well, let's bow in a word of prayer. We'll ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for Paul's word to us this morning on how to live as Christians in a pagan world. We see it all around us today. And so, Father, even though it's maybe different implications with the different culture and the different time frame as far as history goes, this is very applicable to us today. And so, Father, we pray that you would apply this to our hearts, that you would continue to draw us closer and more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, each and every day. And so, Father, we pray you'd bless this time this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we see here how Christians should live in a pagan world. 
That's really his subject matter. And he starts right off there in verse 19 of our text, dealing with a problem they had in Corinth, the problem of compromise, the problem of compromise. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Remember, he just got done telling them that it isn't anything because an idol isn't anything. There's only one God, the true God. And he says, or is an idol is anything? The idea is, no, I'm not saying that there's any, anything to those things. But what he says in verse 20, he says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So there's a whole other issue here that the Corinthians were doing. Remember, they were practicing their Christian liberty, rightly so, and saying, well, you know, we can eat meat offered to idols because an idol is nothing and God doesn't really mind what we eat, so what's the difference? And what Paul is pointing out to them is the difference is, is that you're taking a step further. You're not just eating the meat, now you're going to the festivals. Now you're participating in their tainted communion love feasts and it was dishonoring to the Lord. They were willing to compromise. And so he points out there, he says, I, I imply that what pagans offer, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to part, be, be participants with demons. Why? Because they're filled with the Spirit. They're supposed to be Christians. And then he lays down the rule there in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't come into God's house, the church, partake of communion and then go out to these demon-worshiping festivals that they were having and partake with them. You can't have fellowship with both. And then he points out in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See, there was an issue of compromising within the Corinthian church. We see that a lot today in our churches today. A lot of churches are compromising. And he points out here in verse 19 the importance of the idol. And we talked about this last week. And idolatry is described back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. It says, And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, speaking of Moses, that you might do them in the land that you are going to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, verse 15, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Verse 16, lest, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. There's idolatry in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. So he covers everything because he knew their hearts were wicked and de desperate and, 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 and wicked. And he thought, you know what? Uh, they're, they're like to make an idol out of anything. So I'm just going to cover all the bases here. Verse 19, and beware lest you raise your eyes to the heaven. And when you see the sun, the star, the moons, the sun, the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. So whether it's on the earth or off the earth, we shouldn't be serving anything. We shouldn't be worshiping anything but God, the true God. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. 
down in verse 23 and 24 of Deuteronomy 4, he says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and made and make a carved image. In other words, don't go do this. Don't go make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now last week, or the week before last actually, we looked at idolatry. And we said it has many forms. We said that idolatry really is libeling the character of God himself. Claiming that there's a God other than him. It's also worshiping the true God in a wrong way. It's worshiping any image. It's worshiping angels. It's worshiping demons. It's worshiping even dead people. Dead men. Supreme loyalty in our heart to anything other than the true God is idolatry. Even covetousness is idolatry. And so we see here that he wants to point out that, you know what, there's the issue of the problem of compromise within the Corinthian church, and I would say it's an issue in our modern-day churches as well. And the first thing he points out is you compromise in the area of idols. And he po points out, second point here, verse 20, that the reason he's such against their involvement with idols is because it involves demons. It involves powers from the enemy. See, much more than being inconsistent with the Christian life as far as worshiping an idol, idolatry is demonic, Paul points out. The thing sacrificed has no spiritual power or nature, nor does the physical idol to which it is sacrificed. There's nothing to that. There's only one God. Those things are nothing in and of themselves. But more importantly than they're not being anything, is that idols represent that which is demonic. Demons are the spiritual forces behind all idolatry. Those who sacrifice to idols, Paul says, sacrifice actually to demons. And when worshipers believe an idol represents an actual God, what's going on? Well, Satan sends one of his demon emissaries out to act on the part of that imaginary God. The idol itself is nothing, but Satan can take that idol that's being worshipped and use demons and make it look like that idol's doing things. There's never a God behind an idol, but there's always a spiritual force, and that spiritual force is always evil. It's always demonic. Why? Because it takes away from God's glory. And don't forget, demons can exhibit very considerable power. They're powerful beings. A lot of cultic and pagan religious claims. I think a lot of those claims are faked. You know, you hear even within the Catholic Church, oh, the statue of the Virgin Mary was cry or crying or bleeding. Well, some of those things are exaggerated. Some of those things are fake. But some of them are true. They're evil. See, much goes on under the name of astrology, and it's simply exploitation, taking advantage of those people who may be gullible. But there's also many predictions that come through through the work of demonic forces. They're not omniscient beings. 
but they are beings that can pool the resources and come up with good answers at times. They're not unlimited in their power, but they have the power to perform enough wonders to make enough predictions, you might say, that come true to keep superstitious worshipers deceived and loyal. We know that because Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. It's not disputing the signs and wonders are happening, but it's the source of them. It says false signs and wonders. It's a shell game. It says, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Satan is the prince of this world system. And he rules this world system with the aid of his demonic host. And so to participate in the corrupt things of this world in which we live, especially in idolatrous acts of worship, is really to participate along with Satan and his demons. And it's no place for the believer. It has no place in the life of the believer. That's why Paul writes, I do not want you to be participants with demons. What he's saying to them is stop going to these feasts. Stop going to these, yeah, it's okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, but it's not okay to go and participate in the worship of these idols. Even in the Old Testament, Moses pointed out an individual in Deuteronomy 32, 17. They had sacrificed to demons who were not God. Speaking of Israel, uh, the ones they worship were not divine, but they were real. They were real beings. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 to 17, it says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods they had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. The psalmist even speaks of Israel, and it tells of her following pagan practices, even to the extent of sacrificing. It says in verse 36 of Psalm 106, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. Verse 37 says they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. This is Israel he's talking about. And that tick got off. And he wants to make clear here in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. You can't come into the church, take communion, and then go to these love feasts, these demonic corruptions of the communion table and where they're worshiping idols and there's demonic activity and drink of the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. See, Paul is not giving advice here. He's not saying, you know, that's not such a good idea. He's not saying that. He's stating a fact. It's impossible to do that. Jesus even said so much in Matthew 6, 24. You remember what he said. What did he say? Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll hold to one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters. See, when we fellowship with the Lord, we cannot also fellowship, what Paul is saying, with demons. 
and vice versa, by the way. And see, some attempted to do this in Corinth. And what happened is they, they weren't truly fellowshipping with the Lord. In other words, their worship for the Lord was mere hypocrisy. And don't think for one moment that Christians are immune to the influence of demonic activity. I don't believe Christians can be possessed by a demon because we possess the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit possesses us. But when we willingly ignore the Lord's way and we flirt with the things of Satan by setting idols up of any kind, we open ourselves to demonic influence. Remember, an idol doesn't have to be some carved image that you bow down and worship to every night before you go to bed. We can have idols in our own hearts. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter rebuked Ananias. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? See, their idol was what? It was greed. And his wife, Sapphira, left themselves open to being corrupted by the chief of the demons, Satan himself. See, it's clear from our wrestling with demons, Paul points that out in Ephesians 6, verse 12, that there is some intimate contact between believers and demons. John even warns in 2 John, verses 10 to 11, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching of the apostles, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Even showing hospitality, John points out, to those who promote false teaching causes us to be participants with the demonic influence that's behind their teachings. To do that in any way and then to come to celebrate the Lord's table in true communion with the Savior and his people, Paul says that's impossible. You can't do it. There's something wrong if that's going on. So he talks about the impossibility of both tables. But then he talks about the insinuation of what we're doing in verse 22. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? As a believer, if you're going to go after an idol, if you're going to follow an idol, idol, if you're going to put anything between you and your relationship with God, you're going to provoke the Lord to jealousy. And he says, are we stronger than he? It's a rhetorical question. Clearly, we're not stronger than him. See, idolatry is inconsistent. Idolatry is demonic. And it's offensive to the Lord. It causes his, his jealousy to be provoked. Now, we think of jealousy as something bad. If someone's jealous, they're probably sinfully jealous. Well, God is perfect, and he has a holy jealousy because he will have no competition. There is none other than God. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter, 20, or chapter 32, verse 21, God said Israel made him jealous with what is not God. He says, they have provoked me to anger with their idols. See, they made him jealous. The Lord deals strongly with idolatry because nothing is more offensive to him than someone trying to steal his glory. 
It's the most detestable sign of unbelief. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 6 and 9, it says, Because Judah had gone after gods to serve them and to worship them, behold, I will send and take all their families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants, and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing, an everlasting desolation. What is he picturing there? He's picturing extreme judgment, terrible judgment. Why? Because of idolatry. Even in Revelation chapter 21, John points this out. Chapter 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, listen, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. So Paul's question simply is, are we stronger than he? Obviously, no, we're not. And will those people who participate in idolatry be held accountable? Yes, they will. See, it's only a fool who worships an idol that thinks that that idol is more powerful than the one true God. God will not allow idolatry to go unpunished. No one can escape his judgment. And even his own children, those who are believers, will not escape his severe chastisement if they persist in worshiping any sort of idol. We see that in 1 Corinthians, the next chapter, verse 30, chapter 11. It says some of the Corinthians had done just that. They, they worshiped idols. They were believers, but they participated in these idol feasts. And then they came and they participated in the Holy Communion of the church. And it says they paid with their health. They even paid with their lives. He says some of you are sick, some of you are dead. God's will judge. Well, we come to verse 23, and we see here what Paul is pointing out is how we should, in this pagan world, respond to those who are non-believers, those who are not followers of Christ. How do we respond to them in the right way? Verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Well, what's he speaking of here? He's speaking of not just the problem of compromise, which we already spoke of, but here he's talking about the problem of conformity. Conformity. Here Paul summarizes what he's been saying about Christian liberty or Christian freedom. Because the apostle refers to it several times, he uses this frame, all things are lawful. He used that when he preached in Corinth. And some of the believers were apparently taking that slogan and justify, they were using it to justify anything that they did. Well, we're free in Christ. We can go participate in these idol feasts. That's okay. And the apostle explains earlier in this letter, however, that the use of that phrase in relationship to Christian liberty means all things are specifically, or all things not specifically identified in Scripture as sinful. That's what he's speaking about. I'm free to do whatever that God does not call out as sin. We have a freedom in Christ. 
But back in chapter 6, verse 12, before he mentions all things are lawful, he specifically says the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he proceeds to go on and give a list in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, of the sins that are characterized by the unrighteous. And so he's not saying all things are lawful, I can go out and sin. He's saying all things are lawful as long as they're not forbidden by God. What's he talking about? He's talking about those gray areas that we've been mentioning. Questionable practices, areas of the Christian life that are not specifically forbidden in Scripture. And so he speaks here, and he, he mentions three questions in verses 23 and 24. First of all, verse 23, he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So is it profitable? Is it helpful? Is it something that will bring us together? And then he mentions, does it edify? Does it build up? That has the, the Greek word there has the idea of building a house. And it refers to the literal or figurative building of anything. It's often used in the New Testament for spiritual growth or the building up of believers. And what he's saying is whatever contributes to edifying the believer, building up the believer, causing the, the believer's spiritual growth to increase is profitable. Only things that are profitable are able to edify. And these are two present active indicative verbs basically saying the same thing. If it's profitable, then it will build you up. If it's building you up, then it has to be profitable. Well, what does edify us? Let's look at four things here quickly in Scripture. What builds a believer up? First of all, we know the Bible does, God's word, right? Acts 20, 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, what does it say? Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. That's when we gather together as the church, the reason we open up our Bibles, the reason we have someone stand up and proclaim the word of God and teach the word of God is because we want to build you up. We want to edify you. We want you to grow in your relationship with the Lord, in the grace of the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, listen, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for what? Training in righteousness. Why? Paul goes on, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We want the body of Christ to be built up that's why we encourage you to come to Bible studies. That's why we encourage you to come Sundays and participate in the worship service. Why? Because we want you to be edified. We want you to be built up. Part of that is by the teaching of the Word of God, the Bible. And that's the second thing here, preaching, 1 Corinthians 14, 3 to 4. It's not only the Scriptures build you up, but preaching the Scriptures build you up. He says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 14, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for the upbuilding or the building up and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue, an unknown tongue is the idea there, a, a, a false language builds up himself. 
but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And we'll get into the tongue issue further when we get further along in our study in 1 Corinthians. But his point here is that, you know what? If you want to build up people, you preach to them the word of God. You teach them the word of God. And then thirdly, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, tells us that it's not just the scriptures, the Bible and preaching, but also love. Paul says there in verse 1 of chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And he says this knowledge puffs up, but then what does he say? But love builds up or love edifies. So how are we edified as the body of Christ? It's through the word of God. It's through preaching. It's through love. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul points out it's through the ministry to others. See, that's why it's important to be in fellowship with a local church. So you can actually rub physical elbows with other believers. You can help. You can assist. You can use your gifts to minister on behalf of Christ. And he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, one of the roles is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. See, the reason you come to a local assembly and fellowship on a Sunday morning, part of it is to be fed, to be taught from the Word of God, but part of it also, you're not just called here to be spectators. You're called here to be participants. You're called here to serve each other and the Lord. And see, and when we do that with a joyful heart, when we do it with the right motive, our reward in heaven will be great. Then he says here in verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then verse 24, the third, the next question here, is it unselfish? Is it unselfish? So you have to stop and ask, is it profitable? Does it edify? And then thirdly, is it unselfish? Verse 24, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See, the Corinthians were doing just the opposite. They didn't care about their neighbor. They didn't care what other people thought. They thought, hey, this is my Christian right. I can go to these pagan feasts and I can eat this food and I can participate even in their worship and I have the freedom to do it, so I'm going to do it. I don't care if it offends anybody or not. They were selfish individuals. They were all about me and nothing was mentioned about we, the corporate body of Christ. And this is what Paul has been teaching us. See, we may have the Christian right to do something, but when we do that thing that's not forbidden in Scripture, is it offensive to somebody else? If it is, then we need to stop it. The wrong attitude is, well, who cares? They're just immature. I'm going to do it anyway. It's my right to do it. And Paul's saying, no, you're going about it the wrong way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from what? Selfish ambition or conceit, it says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Boy, if we could just practice that, how much life would be easier, not just in the church, in our families, in our marriages. And then he says in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's funny how we live in a world today that 
Most people look out for their own interests. They don't care about anybody else's interests. You need that promotion, boy, you, 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 you kick and you, you scream, you do whatever you have to do to get those other people out of the way because you deserve it. It's your right. You, know, you claw your way all the way to the top of the ladder of success only in the end to find it leaning against the wrong wall. Then you're in a real world of hurt. So those three questions are important. Is it profitable? Does it edify? Is it unselfish? That deals with the problem of conformity. Well, the third problem here, verses 25 to 30, he mentions is the problem of our conscience. Our conscience. First of all, he says, remember that there is nothing wrong with the food itself. In verse 25 there, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. In other words, as a Christian, you're, it's fine for you to go to the meat market and eat that meat that was sacrificed to an idol. Doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. But you better be careful. You know, if, if it's going to offend someone else, that's where you have to be careful. But there's nothing wrong with the food itself. Paul even wrote in Romans 14, 14, I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. In other words, if you don't feel comfortable eating meat sacrificed to idols, that's okay too. You don't want to go against your own conscience. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, it tells us about what's going to be happening in the latter times. And it says there, Paul points out in chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. There's the demonic activity and the teaching of demons. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars. Then it says this, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, you know what, you need to remember that all these things were created by God. He says, eat whatever you want. Don't raise a question on your own conscience sake. It says, verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, if God made it, it must be okay. We don't need to live under those Old Testament rules that Israel was dietary rules and everything. If you want to do it, I guess it's okay to do it. Maybe a better way of living or something, but you don't have to. You have the, the Christian freedom to eat whatever you want. And trust me, some people eat some really weird things. <laughs> There's a lot of things that people eat that if you knew what was in them, you probably wouldn't eat them again. But then he raises this question, how do we respond if someone invites us? How do we respond to the invitation of a non-believer without asking questions? Look at what he says in 27. He says, if one of the unbelievers, those who don't know Christ, those outside of Christ, 
If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, you want to go, you can't get out of it, whatever, you're going to go. Maybe you want to go and minister to them. It says you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if, if an unbeliever invites you over to dinner, say they serve a piece of meat. If you're a believer, first of all, you understand that the, the idol's nothing. The meat that's sacrificed to the idol that's nothing is nothing. So it's kind of, you have the freedom to eat the meat. It's irrelevant whether you eat it or not. And it would be wrong for you as a believer to go in the house of an unbeliever who is gracious enough to invite you over for dinner to sit down and right before they give you a piece of meat, you say, oh, wait a minute. Was this, where was this meat? Where did you get it? Was this offered to, to demons? Was this part of the, the meat that was taken from the temple and sold? Is that where you got this meat? What are you going to do? You're going to shut down at that point any ability to go further with the gospel with those people. You're going to offend them. When you know, in fact, that God created all the meat and that there's no such thing as an idol in that sense. It has no power. And as a believer, it means nothing to you. So you're free to eat it. So why even bring it up? See, so many times when we're sharing Christ with people, when we're sharing Christ with unbelievers, I've seen Christians do some horrendous things in the name of Christ. You know, I've known Christians in the past that's, say, talking to someone who likes to drink or someone who, who smokes cigarettes or maybe even takes drugs. And that's all they see. That's all they're focusing on. And so what do they do? They, they preach at them about their vices. You know, you shouldn't be drinking and you shouldn't be smoking and you shouldn't be taking those drugs. You shouldn't be running around on your wife Rather, rather than point out to them the, the sinful state of their being, the sinful state of their heart, what do we do? We nitpick on every little issue of sin in their life. And these are non-believers. So non-believers, guess what? Are going to live like non-believers. <laughs> they're going to do sin, and they're even going to enjoy their sin. And so if a non-believer invites you into their sphere of influence, their home for dinner, don't be, it's not cause for alarm if, if they crack open a, a bottle of wine or pour themselves a Manhattan or do whatever. They're unbelievers. They're not held to the same standard we are. So what's, what would be the reason us, of us going? We don't want to go and just fellowship with unbelievers because we have no fellowship with them. If they don't know God. So we wouldn't want to create a, a social relationship with unbelievers where we're participating, you know, in their idol feasts or we're, we're participating in their sin. But on occasion, a non-believer might invite you out to something. And if you can go with a clear conscience and you can go and maintain holiness in your own personal life, you know, I, when I was a youth pastor, one of the individuals in the church invited me out for lunch one day. And I said, sure, you know, I'll pick you up. Okay. And I think it was more of a test than anything else. I don't, I don't know if this, I don't think this guy was a Christian. 
by how he lived his life. I mean, it didn't seem like he was. He was a nice guy. You know, and he'd pop into church once in a while. And so he took me out to lunch. We got in his car. And we started driving. We went down downtown Fremont there. And I'm like, oh, where are we going to lunch? He goes, oh, you'll see. <laughs> and he kind of chuckled. We took me to his local bar where he hung out with all his buddies. And back then, you know, you could smoke and all that stuff. That turned me off more than everything else. But, you know, he was testing me. He wanted to see, okay, how's this guy going to react in this situation? And I didn't react at all. Sat down, had a hamburger with him or BLT or whatever it was. And, and uh, you know, he even he gave me the option. He goes, you, do you want to sit at the bar or do you want to sit in a booth? I said, well, maybe a booth might be better. You know, at least I can hide in there in case, God forbid, somebody from the church walk in. That would be awkward in and of itself, right? But I remember going through that, that, that lunch and him, you know, his buddies coming over. Oh, who's this guy? Oh, he's my pastor, you know, and they'd let expletives fly. And, and you know, they're all testing me, testing me. That's the world in which they live. I shouldn't put demands upon their behavior. You know, my goal is to befriend them and to win them to Christ, to share the gospel with them. And you have to earn that sometimes. I mean, think of how it would be received if we got to the bar and I refused to go in to, to have a sandwich in there. And see, I mean, it, it really, now I'm not encouraging people to go to bars. That's, that's not my point. But my point is what Paul is saying, there may be occasions when an unbeliever puts you in that kind of a situation and you better think ahead of time how you're going to react. Verse 28, he, he says here in verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, in other words, they point it out to you. You know, they set you up. You know, if the guy in the bar would have said, hey, do you, do you want a do you want a shot? Do you want a shot of whiskey or whatever they drink in? I've never really been in a bar, but you know, other than then, do you want a beer? You know, my answer would have been no. Just because of testimony's sake. See, and I, I would pray that they would have the maturity to understand why I wouldn't want a beer. I wouldn't make it a big religious thing, but I would simply say I, I wouldn't do it. And so here he's saying if they invite you over for dinner and you're sitting around the dinner table and you go to take a bite and they say, oh, by the way, they're uh, Christian, that, that meat was sacrificed to my pagan God. What do you think about that? What Paul says is, you know, in that case, refuse to eat what was sacrificed to idols if an issue is being made of it. It's not that you're making an issue, but it's somebody setting you up. So they can come back and say, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, the, the youth pastor, the pastor was down there in the bar. I had lunch with him. Yeah, he had a couple shots of whiskey with me. You know, I mean, that wouldn't go well. And so he says there in verse 28, do not eat it. Why? For your own sake? No. For the sake of who? For the sake of the one whom informed you. And for the sake of conscience. And he clarifies whose conscience. Verse 29 and 30, he points out here, resist feeling guilty for what troubles another person. If you 
have been able to thank God for the opportunity. Look at what he says in verse 29. I do not mean your conscience. In other words, you don't have a problem eating this meat to an idol because an idol's nothing. But if they're pointing it out to you, there must be a reason. So he says, I do not mean your conscience, but his, the one who's pointing it out. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? In Romans chapter 14, verses 22 to 23, it says, The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Verse 23, Romans 14, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, if you're in that situation and your heart is just convicting you, you think, you know what, I shouldn't partake of this. He pointed it out and it's not, not a good direction to go down. Then don't do it. Not for your own conscience, but for the other person's. And so he wants us to understand that very clearly. And that's what he says there in verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, if I give thanks for the food that was created by God, whatever it is, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? So it's just basically giving preference over your own Christian liberty, your Christian freedom to those who may be affected by the decisions you make. And so he wants us to understand these problems. But then here in verses 31, quickly in verse 33 and uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, he calls us to remember our basic purpose in life. This is what Paul has been leading to all along. This is kind of the apex of the whole book. He's telling the Corinthians, look, if you don't hear anything else, please hear this. Verse 31, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, Eating and drinking is the basic things in life. But even the more complicated things, whatever you do, what does he say? Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or even to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, he says, not seeking my own advantage, my own privilege, but that of many that they may be saved. In verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Remember, in the original text of scripture there weren't verses and chapter divisions and all that this was a simple letter it was just written out it wasn't chapter 10 and all that we put those in there so we could better uh, navigate our way through scripture so a lot of commentators believe that verse 1 of chapter 11 go with chapter 10 and it kind of meets it that way but here he he wants us to remember our basic purpose in life and he wants us to see that we need to be committed to glorifying God with our lives. See, Paul's central message in this passage of Scripture, and really the, the complete Bible central message across the, the span of time is summarized in verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. 
In other words, it's, it's really speaking the, pur the purpose of using our liberty carefully and selflessly, not selfishly, but selflessly, is to glorify God. The idea here of eating and drinking, and it's in the context of things that were offered to idols, but it's not limited to that. I mean, we probably don't eat and drink a lot of things that are offered to idols in our day and age, at least in this country in which we live. Paul is saying that even the most simple things, the most mundane things, the most routine things, maybe even the most non-spiritual things in our life, like eating and drinking, we should be seeking to glorify God. His glory is what we live for. It's our life commitment. It's the purpose of our whole life. And by the way, remember, your life is not your own. You were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 7, 23 says. So don't think, well, now I'm a Christian. I can go do whatever I want. No, you can't. You were bought with a price. You're called to serve your Lord and Savior. You can't just do whatever you want, whenever you want. You know, sometimes I... That frustrates me sometimes, frankly. I mean, there are times when I want to be with my grandkids and see them grow up. And, you know, it blew me away. I was thinking this year my grandson's going to be 18 this August. 18 years of age. And I remember when he was just a little baby. And I'm thinking, wow, out of all the time, those 18 years, I wonder how much time I actually spent with him. Now, we get there on vacations and when we can, and they come here when we can. But, you know, selfishly, I want to spend every moment with my grandson, my granddaughters, and watch them grow up and have a ministry in their life. But you know what? At this time, God has not allowed that. He's called me to a ministry here. And so, you know, part of that is Wanting to glorify God. I mean, I could selfishly say, I'm out of here and leave. But God doesn't have me at that point. And so I need to be willing, because I am not my own, to sacrifice. In whatever we do. And we need to be willing to glorify God. God created man to glorify himself and that is man's purpose in life. Um, unfortunately, fallen man cannot purpose to glorify God. There's nothing a fallen person can do that would glorify God. Because he does not know God, the Bible says. He's dead in his trespasses and sin. He doesn't have a godly nature that we have through Christ. When we come to Christ, he, he gives us a, a new heart. He transforms us. The word glory itself means something that is worthy of praise or exaltation. It speaks of brilliance and beauty. Renown, you might say, renown. God's glory basically has two aspects. First, it ha he has his inherent or intrinsic glory. God is the only being in all of existence who can say that he possesses his own glory. No one can give glory to him. 
It already completely belongs to him. Not based on what he does, but based on who he is. He's God. If no one ever gave God praise, he would still be the glorious God that he is because he was full of glory before he created any other beings to worship him. See, so many times you hear people say, well, why did God create Adam and Eve? And why did God create everything? Well, God was lonely. What? Listen to what you're saying. You're saying God at one point in time was lonely? No, he wasn't. We were created for his glory. We weren't created because God needed somebody to talk to. God has need of nothing. God is all sufficient in and of himself. Don't ever fall into that lie. So that's his intrinsic or his inherent glory. God is glorious because he is God. Well, secondly, the second aspect of God's glory is his, what we would call his ascribed glory, his ascribed glory. In Psalm 29, verses 1 to 2, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, the psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. I mean, obviously, we cannot give God glory in the sense that we're adding to his glory. We're fallen beings. Just like we can't add to his strength. Why? Because God is all-powerful. We can't tell God something that he doesn't already know. Why? Because God is all-knowing. The psalmist is simply urging us to recognize and to really acclaim the glory that God already has. Practical ways of glorifying God frequently are given in Scripture. In Joshua 7, 19, it's pointed out that confession of sin is a way that you can glorify God. Romans 4.20 points out that we can give God glory by trusting him or bearing fruit for him in John 15.8. Psalm 50 verse 23 says, thanking him. A simple word of thanks to God gives him glory. Or 1 Peter 4, 4 uh, 14-16 talks about suffering for Christ gives God glory. Philippians 4, 10 to 20 talks about being content. That's another aspect, another way that we can give God glory. John 14, 13 talks about praying and how that glorifies the Father. Or even spreading the word in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. See, anything and everything a Christian says and does should be for God's glory, not his own. A person either lives a life that honors God or they live a life that dishonors God. I trust you want to honor God with your life. And so we have to be reminded that we need to be committed to glorifying God. Well, here in verse 32, it points out that we need to be careful not to offend. He says, give no offense. See, our living in Christ should be so righteous, so loving, so uh, selfless, so others-minded, you might say, that we give no offense. And it doesn't matter what religious group you're in. You could be part of the Jews, it says, or the Greeks, or even the church of God. It's irrelevant. I mean, that basically covers all humanity. Greeks, Jews, and the church. 
And what Paul is trying to tell us is no action should prevent an unbeliever, someone who's outside of Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile, from coming to Christ. God forbid that should ever happen. Nor should any action that we ever take cause a weak brother in Christ to stumble. See, and that's where the Corinthians, they were just missing the whole point. They said, hey, this is our right to go do this and we're going to go do it. We don't care what it, who it offends. If it causes the weaker brother to stumble, oh well, too bad. You better suck it up. That's not a godly attitude to have. That does not bring God glory. See, and you say, well, when you give out the gospel, aren't you offending people? Sure, that's different. See, it's, it's one thing to be offensive to people. It's not another thing to give them a truth that is offensive to them. You know, you're not trying to offend them, but you realize that the gospel is an offense. The idea that they have to grapple with their own sin and come to Christ. The word there, give no offense, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, it's rendered, be blameless, be blameless. Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes where? Through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. We have to be careful, beloved, that our lives are not offensive, that our words are not offensive. And not just to God, but to others. And we do that out of concern for their salvation, that they would be one to Christ. Verse 33 here, our last point in this section, being concerned for the salvation of others. He says there, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Why? Because I don't want to ever put a roadblock. I don't want to ever put a barrier between that person and Christ. That would be the worst possible thing I could do. And so Paul says, I don't want to do that. I want to please everyone in everything I do. That doesn't mean he was a people pleaser. Paul wasn't some weak-kneed, mealy mouse guy that walked around saying, oh, I'm afraid of what anybody will think of me, and I don't want to be truthful with them. No, he stood his ground when it came to the truth. But in his own lifestyle, in his own way, in the way his actions, he wanted to please everyone in everything he did, not seeking his own advantage. He didn't do it for his own purpose, but he did it that they may be saved, it says. So Paul closes this section, which in thought extends there into chapter 11, verse 1, with a practical suggestion. He says, you know what? Church, be imitators of me. And he qualifies it, as I am of Christ. See, that's why we're called Christians, little, little Christ. We're little Christians. We're to imitate Christ. And as we imitate Christ, we should encourage others to imitate us as we imitate Christ. So because the apostle lived in such a way as to please everyone for the sake of evangelizing the world, he could tell them, follow my own example. I mean, he lived and he ministered among the Corinthians for some 18 months. And the believers there knew him very well. He even told them, you remember how I lived when I was with you. 
live like that yourselves. He wasn't being braggadocious. He was just pointing out a fact. See, Paul's goal was to bring men and women and children to salvation. And he was willing to set anything aside for that. He was willing to sacrifice anything. And the reason Paul was so confident, so successful in his Christian living in general and his responsible use of Christian liberty was that he was what? An imitator of Christ. That's what we should be. We should look to the supreme example of the one who set aside his rights for the sake of others. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Christ, speaking of Christ, it says, the one who emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he is our supreme example. Don't follow men. Men in general will let you down. You keep your eyes fixated on Christ. It's okay to have someone who is emulating Christ and you want to follow their example. That's fine. That's what Paul is saying. But even Paul clarified it. Follow me as I follow Christ. And his idea was, well, there may be times when I don't follow Christ. He wasn't perfect. And Paul called the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitated Christ. And all that was for his, for his glory. Well, this concludes our study through chapter 11. And uh, we'll be heading off into the next section of 1 Corinthians, which deals with spiritual gifts. And a lot of, you, you know, 40-some messages ago, when we first started through 1 Corinthians, I remember several of you asked, why are we going to talk about tongues and all the, the gifts? And Yeah, we're going to get there. you got to be patient. And so we're finally cracking that door open concerning spiritual gifts. And I, I trust and I pray that that will be a very, very encouraging and fruitful time for us as a church as we go through Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts and a proper understanding of some of the things we see going on in the name of Christ around us um, that are not necessarily biblical. Well, with this conclusion, let me join, us, join me in a word of prayer as we close off our time together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning that we could understand your word. We thank you for Paul's words that we should, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we should do it for your glory, not for our own glory. And Lord, we just pray that as we live this Christian life as Christians here on this, this pagan world, that we would live lives that are exemplary of Christ, that we would be humble, that we would be willing to grow and learn, be built up in our faith, not just so that we could become mature Christians, but so that we could be better equipped to spread the gospel, your precious gospel of grace to those who have lost, who are lost and on their way to hell. We pray that as we share the message of the truth with them, Lord, that you would transform their hearts and their minds to understand and to hold on to that truth, the truth that Christ died for their sins in their place. And if they would just turn from their sin and turn to the Savior, 
We call that repentance. Lord, that you would just be glorified in that. And Father, that you would transform them, forgive them of their sin, free, free them from the burden of the sin that they're carrying. Lord, it's not a fun place to be when you're trying to work out your salvation through religious means or through good works of any kind. And there's a lot of religion in the world and it doesn't do us a lot of good, frankly, because it's not done the way that you prescribe in your word. Your word says that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift so that we should not boast. Lord, I pray that if anyone's listening today, that they would just cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Transform my heart. Call me to be your child. I desire to follow you. And for us believers, Lord, I pray that we would be diligent to live lives that are first obedient to you and exemplary of Christ so that when we're out in this sin-stained world filled with chaos, that we could speak words of truth that would convict hearts and melt them before a holy God, that they would be converted to Christ. Pray for our president and vice president in our country during this time. We pray for our local leaders, our local law enforcement officers. We pray for their protection. Lord, we thank you that they're there to protect us. And Father, we pray that you would just enable them to continue to do their job in a way that would be honoring to you. And Lord, we pray that you would just uh, give us a good day, a good weekend in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.